from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. Oops, you did it again. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. Today's episode, it's all about the mind. This week, I've got to do some housekeeping. This week, okay, Wednesday, September 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Please remember to tune in live to YouTube to watch the second episode of Shark Bite Biz live with our fabulous and amazing co-host, Odetta Pine. We'll be talking about the Chips Act, inflation. Act, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I believe, and of course, the ongoing Elon Musk and Twitter saga. Remember, if you love this show and you love our live stream, support us by grabbing some of the freshest coffee known on earth from deadhousecoffee.com, where you can save 20% just by using the code SHARK. Now, let's get back to today's episode, because it is a fabulous discussion about the brain and how the brain works. The neuroscience of your brain, creativity, and writing. I had no idea what I was getting into when I originally booked this guest. I'm like, oh, it seems interesting. You know, I like to learn about how the mind works. I like to learn about creativity, writing, reading, stuff like that. But I tell you what, I've had plenty of fascinating discussions on this show. This one takes a cake. It is probably the most fascinating discussion I have had on this show. And ultimately, my mind was blown away because I became totally engulfed in this most intriguing of intriguing discussions. So who do we have today? None other than Mr. Rob Ashton from all the way over in the UK. Rob Ashton is an author, entrepreneur, and former scientist who has had a lifelong fascination with how the things we read and write influence what we think and do. He's been researching the science behind the process of reading and writing for more than six years. His research runs the gamut of cognitive and social neuroscience, cognitive and social psychology, and behavioral and neuroeconomics. This has given him a unique perspective on why so much of our written communication simply doesn't work. Rob is also a successful entrepreneur, having founded the global learning company Emphasis in 1998. The company has so far enabled over 70 thousand people to make more impact with their professional writing. High profile clients include all the big four accounting firms, big tech, big pharma, the UK prime minister's office at 10 Downing Street, and even the royal household at Buckingham Palace itself. And I just got to say, we recorded this episode, obviously, before the queen has passed. So Rob, I, I know working with Buckingham Palace, you have a a certain love and passion for the monarchy out there. So, hey, love to you, love to your country as you go through this transition period with the loss of your queen. So anyways, I'm going to shut up. Let's bring Rob right on in here. Creative and innovation tips. Rob, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Hey, David, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, is that Is that a good thing? Just became shark bait. It's a pretty good thing. Great to have you here. And, uh, you know, we have a tradition on the show. Very first question we always ask every single person that comes on. What's your experience? What's your background? How'd you get where you're, where you're at? You know, basically in a nutshell, what makes Rob? Rob. Um, I think if you, if you cut me in half, you'd find the word writing running all the way 
through me like like a stick of rock candy. It, it's um, so I'm all about writing. I'm a, I'm a, a writer. It's a bit meta. I'm a writer who focuses on writing, or specifically the the, the science of writing, the brain science of of written communication. Um, and uh, I started. I did start off as a scientist many many years ago. Uh, worked as a molecular biologist on the um, on the first uh, first tests for HIV, uh, and uh, but moved moved from there into science publishing and um, uh, uh, and then set up a training business focusing on written communication. So I did notice that it said former scientist in your bio. And I was like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen someone call themselves a former scientist. Most people just stick with it. I, I'm a scientist. They don't add the word former in there, even if they're not active in practicing. So I found that to be kind of unique. I, I thought it'd be a bit disingenuous of me to call myself a scientist now because it's been a, a long time since I left uh, left the bench, as scientists say, um, very long time ago. I, you know, I'm more of a I've been an entrepreneur for the last 24 years, running a, a training company specializing in, in in writing skills. But now, now I'm a writer. I do this full time, and uh, yeah, I, I focus on on the science of written communication. The science of written communication. That that is a crazy journey, though. I mean, going from working on the first HIV test all the way through now, you know being a former scientist, as you call it, and now working on writing and the science of writing. What do you view as the, the science of writing or written communication? Do you know, when I started this, so so having been, a, you know, if, you, if you go back just quickly to, to when I left um, practical science, and first of all, I started off in science journals, and then moved into consumer publishing. So I was a journalist, I was an editor, and I learned things that, you know, I learned how to make words work. I learned how to give them much more impact. And then I, when I set up uh, Emphasis, the, the, the writing consultancy, that was to teach people some of those trade secrets from publishing. So, so you know, we're, we were and still are, that, that company's still very much alive and kicking, um, teaching people how to communicate in writing, how to make things much more effective. But the science bit never really left me. And I knew that I knew that what we were doing worked, but I didn't know why it worked, and I didn't know if we could make it better. But what I also noticed is that there's an awful lot of pseudoscience out there. If you look on the web, there's a lot of bad advice. There's a lot of stuff that seems to be based on hearsay or even wishful thinking. Are you talking about... Ancient uh, ancient aliens on uh, History Channel, is that pseudoscience? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. no. So, so it, you know, it's um, when people talk about how the brain works, for instance. Right, right. You know, right. They, they might they might talk about say um, left brain or right brain bias. They might say, "Are you a left brain person or a right brain person?" And how to write for the left side of the brain? How to write for the right side of the brain? This idea that that the the left is is very logical. And the right side of the brain is is um, is creative. That that's probably one of the biggest brain myths out there because it's it's not true. We don't have this left brain right brain bias. And in fact, if you look at writing, it, the the area of the brain that's responsible for language uh, and it, including written communication is is that which you think of as being often quite a creative thing, right? That's that's in the left side of the brain for most people. So so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where people 
say, you know, how to write for right brain people, that kind of thing. For most people, okay. Can it be on the other side for the rest of the people? Yeah, I think it's, um, I'm sure the percentage just off the top of my head, uh, but I think it's it's about 5%, something like that. Five, maybe 10%, um, maybe a bit more. But yeah, so it's, you know, and it, uh, incidentally, it can change as well. It, you know, if, if, um, it, if you, if, if you have brain surgery early enough in life, so, you know, children who have brain surgery and have half their brain removed, uh, and let's say the left side of their brain is removed, you find that, that they usually then acquire the, the, the language capacity. It sort of takes, takes, res, takes up residence in the right side of the brain. So it's, you know, it's not even something that's, that's set in stone from the beginning. Although, I mean, it is for most, it is for most people. Um, but yeah, so th- and with with brain science generally, you're often talking about generalities anyway. That's crazy. I mean, I I didn't. I guess I never realized as you were explaining that that the brain sounds like it can develop differently for every person. Is is that an accurate or semi semi accurate statement? Well, within within certain limits. And how do they know that? I mean, that seems like that's pretty crazy to to figure that out generally speaking as well too i mean how do you pin down like oh this part of the brain does this i mean neuroscience is is something that's been um really coming on in leaps and bounds over the last uh 20 years um probably one of the biggest developments was the um invention of uh, a brain scanner that that can show what's happening in real time now when i say can show what's happening it shows where the blood is flowing so you can and and uh, neuroscientists use use blood flow as a kind of a proxy for activity. Okay, so it's uh, so so they will look at they put somebody in one of these scanners so called an fMRI. You've probably heard of it, functional magnetic resonance imaging. Put people in these scanners, give them some tasks to do, and then see which areas light up. And and lighting up is showing where the blood flow is. Um, and then what you can then do is do that for a number of people uh, and see you know, see, see where the activity is. Uh, and that, you know, there are, there are lots of other um, brain imaging techniques. I don't know. To me, it just sounds uh, pretty astonishing that it would be as simple as seeing where the blood flows to a certain area of the brain. And that's how you know, oh, okay, he's doing this. So one plus one equals two. That must mean that he's using that section of the brain. I don't know. It just sounds a little bit too too simple for something as complex as the human brain. Uh, and it is because you know scientists don't use just that. So they will, you know, so there are lots of other um brain scanning techniques that you know uh, I mean fMRI is kind of fairly it enables you to see what's happening in real time, but it's kind of it's not that detailed uh whereas there are other um brain scanning techniques which are but what you have to remember is also they're not built they're not basing this just on that. So in the case of language, for instance, I mean, the very first um, parts of the brain to be identified as being associated with a certain activity were the language areas of the brain, uh, two areas called, called Broca's area and Wernicke's area, which deal, deal with speech production and, and language comprehension. Um, you know, with that, there was a, it, in the early days, it was actually about brain injury. That's, that's, how, that's how brain scientists learn about you know, classic brain science is you study people who can't do something, and then, you know, in an autopsy or you know, in the case of um, in the case of uh, Broca's area, it was um, it was a guy who it's a very very famous 
story um, of a guy who worked on the railroad uh, and um, had an accident. So he was tamping down some gunpowder in a rock with uh, with an iron rod, and he forgot to um, he forgot to put the wadding in. It would stop stop it sparking, uh, and it sparked. And this thing, this rod, shot through his head. It shot through his eye, and at the top of his head. Um, apologies to anybody eating their dinner at the moment. Uh, and um, and he, you know, his personality changed. Um, you know, so it's so it was so people can then see, you know, what when things like that happen, they can say, oh, okay, so it looks like. I mean, he he recovered to all intents and purposes in that he, you know, he didn't he didn't die. Um, but he was changed in his abilities, and that's so. So it's things like that where um, where, where people have these brain injuries, uh, have brain tumors. Uh, you know, uh, neuroscientists can then can, can kind of correlate what, what they're having a problem with. Yeah, I've heard stories of that throughout life of people. You know, they got brain injury. And it, you know, to all intents and purposes, like you said, they they fully recovered, but. They recovered almost as a different person where it's like their personality is different. Their Maybe their abilities are, are different. And sometimes I think I've even seen some people on, you know, TV shows after traumatic, you know, brain um, injury thing like that where... Um, you know, like one of those uh, unsolved mystery type things where, oh, you know, this happened to this person and now they can do this super ability. Like, what is it? You know, how come the mind works like this? And it, it's kind of fascinating to have somebody that is as studied as you are come in and to a degree, not saying with the specific people that I saw on TV, but you're, you're kind of validating that those stories, you know, they kind of are real. I mean, depending on the story, depending on the person, obviously, but it does actually happen. The essence of what we're talking about can and does happen. Totally, totally. I mean, there's a famous case in the 60s of a, a, a mild-mannered family guy. Um, uh, he, you know, he was an Eagle Scout. He kind of, he was, he was doing really well in his job. Uh, nothing really out of the ordinary. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it was terrible, you know, tragically he, he killed his mother, he killed his, his, um, his wife. And then the next day, uh, he went on a, a killing spree, uh, and he'd even written a, a, a letter he'd written in his diary, just saying, you know, can you uh, 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 talking about this, this ideation of these things he wanted to do. And they obviously they found this af- afterwards, um, and he said, in the event of my death, can you do an autopsy on me, examine my brain? And what they found was a tumor uh, growing in the middle of his brain, just pressing on the amygdala, which is, and the amygdala is kind of like the emotional center of the brain. You know, so this, this changed his personality. And I, I know, and quite dramatically, uh, but I, I knew somebody um, back when I worked in, in magazines, there was a guy um, who whose personality changed the other way. <laughs> it was actually... You know, he was somebody who was quite difficult to work with and, and quite, um, you know, he could be really, yeah, I wouldn't say he was universally liked, put it that way. You, you know, he was kind of seemed to be quite, quite selfish, quite arrogant. Um, and he got a, a, a he got a brain tumor and he became the loveliest guy you could ever meet. 
that you know it was it was it was terminal but it's you know everybody was so so sad when he finally passed away and they just said he was such a nice guy and it was you could just see this this change in his personality and and it was um you know, it was it was the tumor that that was doing it. So so yeah, absolutely. How much of it though was the tumor versus the psychology of it? Though I wonder, would somebody like that they find out that they have a tumor and they're like, uh, yes, you know, I'm gonna die, and it just humbles you and uh, changes the way that you think. Just you know, your your own self conscious versus the tumor, and how much of it is the tumor. Because I can tell you what, if I found out I had a tumor in the brain, even if I it has zero personality impact on me at that point, uh, it's going to change me as an individual. Just the the mentality, the mind, you know, f that would give me. <laughs> People get what I'm trying to say there. Like just that impact alone, and the you know before the tumor even has a chance to impact my mind. So. Could there have been some of that going on as well, too? Is it a little of both? What do you think? Well, we'll, we'll never know. Um, and, it, you know, it was, this wasn't a scientific study, so there would have, you know, there was no um, no autopsy. Um, it, it, I think that's probably, a, you know, that's fair. That's fair to say. You know, it's probably, that was probably a huge factor, you know, finding out they had a terminal illness. Um, it was something that a lot of people commented on. Uh, that doesn't make it true. Um, and it's, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's an anecdote, it's anecdotal evidence. I want to make sure my funeral is not empty. I mean, I think that's the mentality a, a lot of people would take, you know, if they found out what he found out, then it's probably a mix of both. But with the first person that you explained the quote unquote Eagle Scout up until the, the brain injury, I mean, that kind of sounds to me like the people out here that we find that have cte you know um for people that don't know do you know what cte is okay so people that get chronic head injuries concussions stuff like that um basically over time it i, I guess it scars the brain or something like that uh, it's part of the reason why American football is so damn uh, so dangerous, uh, boxing stuff like that, and why some of the football players over past history, American football, again for people listening overseas, but um, not football as in what Americans call soccer, but uh, uh, with you know the NFL with uh, you know our famous Philadelphia Eagles, but these head injuries would call uh, over time getting hit and hit and hit in the head. That's why they take concussions so seriously now in the, the NFL. I mean, if you see a player get a hit to the head, I mean, it's penalty, you can be ejected for it. Um, they also take the player that was hit, you know, out of the game as a precaution, at least until they've been examined, but if they're stumbling, stuff like that. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it'd be like, um, okay, you know, you're up now, get back in the huddle, go, go, go do your job. They, they take a totally another approach to it because so many players have gone off the deep end and it's not just something that happens in football. I mean, you have, um, you know, people from different sports, uh, I believe. 
Um, I, I don't want to say the name, but there is a like a wrestler that that went out and committed a tragedy. I believe they they determined that he was potentially with CTE, and there's no way to kind of diagnose it right now. You can only diagnose it um, through an autopsy, as far as I know. Um, that that like they can detect like, hey, these people, you know, off themselves uh, or you know, their families or did a violent act or have been acting out outrageous and it led to their demise and death, uh, whatever it may be, you know, just outlandish behavior. And then they study the brains afterwards and they found out that, uh, you know, it's due to this um, thing called CTE. So uh, that's something uh, you, you should uh, uh, see it as you're kind of like a, an expert with a lot of these different things. You should... Check that out. I think you'll find that topic very, very interesting. I, I, I definitely will. Yeah, and you know that sounds sounds familiar. You know, you see the same thing in in boxing, which you know you'd expect to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's boxers, even even professional wrestlers, and wrestling is fake. But those guys get hit hard. I mean, even though uh, I guess a lot of wrestling fans are going to be bad. I just called wrestling fake. But even though things like the WWE is not real. Those guys are taking a beating. They're putting their bodies through torture to perform a show. And they still do get hits, jerks, things like that to the head. And it does produce things like um, uh, CTE, which is ultimately why I think they have. I think that's one of the main reasons uh, that they've toned down, like the WWE has toned down wrestling to what it was in the late '90s, early 2000s, probably when it was at the height of its prop, uh, popularity. And then you know you've had some crazy incidents happening there. CTE starts getting recognized and renowned by by a scientist. Uh, like, hey, this is in you know it's happening in all the sports world, boxing to to football to wrestling to all these different things. And I think that's kind of what toned it down to make it more family friendly. Uh, which is what I, I hear from a lot of old school wrestling fans are not fans of uh, Tay. You mentioned soccer, you know, that's even with that, you know, heading the ball. The head in the head of the ball. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got, you've got a solid, uh, not solid, but you know, you've got a, you've got a, a leather ball. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think about the, <laughs> what the balls were like, you know, thinking back to my dad, you know, when, when he was playing football, as we call it as a kid, uh, you know, this, this thing was like a rock. You know, and and they would ju- they would just head it. You know, and the first time I ever headed a leather ball, it was like, well, you know, it's kind of saw stars. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the thing is with with the brain, it's um, and, and you know, I'm, and I'm, I should stress, I'm not a neuroscientist. You know, you know, I'm uh, I'm somebody who looks at um, uh, at. All, all sorts of brain science, but you know, that's includes psychology. The, your neurology, the neurology the, is a big part of what you do because it helps with uh, like you studying that stuff. You, you're not a neurologist, but you're very well studied. It sounds like in that area because it helps with the written communication. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've got a strong science background, um, mm-hmm. but what I, what I started doing six years Never ago. Never would have guessed. Well, <laughs> what gave it away what gave it away uh, yeah. um, <laughs> um but six years ago you know i thought well I, I will look into the psychology of of writing i will look into the neuroscience um i'll look into the the behavioral economics you know how we make decisions um and i gave myself six months to do that i thought i'll, I'll, I'll just take some time out i'll work on this for six months see what's there 
uh, and then write a book on it. Uh, mm-hmm. And here I am six years later, uh, you know, and it took me six so, months so, yeah, and six years. You know, that back, that background helped, uh, as you rightly say, you know, it helped me read the stuff. It helped me get into the, the, the papers, the published papers on it uh, and, um, you know, bring myself up to speed. But, you know, I could be doing this for the rest of my life. It, it's there's so much science out there on, uh, on this. And it's mm-hmm. and, and outside of academia, most people don't know about it. And in fact, yeah. what they do is they, you know, this thing writing, which actually they're doing all day. You know, let's be clear about this. What are we talking mm-hmm. about? We're talking about the thing you do all day. We're talking about text messaging, you know, messaging, messaging people on Slack. We're talking about email. That's one thing. I think people people forget that writing is like, you know, for example, okay, let, let me turn this, flip it on the other side real quick. We're reading, okay? Reading, writing. I just had the kids just started school yesterday. Uh, my five-year-old just went to kindergarten. Um, and I had to fill out papers for my newly minted fourth grader. And, you know, they, the teacher was asking, um, does the student read? What does the student feel about reading? And I, I, I kind of sat back and I'm like, no, she does not read physical books, but she is reading all the time, whether it's chatting with friends in video games, whether it's writing text messages or reading text messages, whether it's reading this or reading that, like she is reading digital products 24 seven. So I had to specify, you know, like she reads digital books, you know, a hardcover back book, probably not so much. And it's just because we're a very digital first family here. But she, you know, reads a lot and, uh, you know, understands between formal words, you know, and also reading slang words and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I, I kind of view that, you know, just as you were saying with writing, okay, where you're writing, like writing is more than just, oh, you're writing out a letter or something, handwritten notes, stuff like that. You know, it's digital text messages. It's writing digital notes. You know, it's writing, um, you know, on the computer. It's writing on Facebook. It's it's it takes many different forms. I think too many people kind of box in writing or reading more in the traditional forms, and it, you know, especially now in the digital transformation period that we're in, they need to expand those definitions. I think of both topics. I mean. Do you think I've got a point there at all? What do you think about that? I totally got a point. It's that the thing is that writing, we write more, we write and we read more now than at any other point in our history. Right. And that's what people don't understand. I argue this with my wife all the time. My wife's like, oh, your daughter's never, um, sorry, Fed just heard. Uh, My wife's like, oh, you know, she never read. I'm like, she's reading all day, all the time, like all this digital interaction that she's having, she's reading. And that's something 10 years ago, like I have a 19 year old too. You know, there wasn't this much digital stuff. He didn't have a cell phone when, you know, it wasn't common for 10 year olds to have cell phones when he was 10, you know, uh, like it is now. He's not reading, wasn't reading 24 7 unless he had a physical book. You know, the world has changed and he is reading all day, every day because everything she has to do has involves reading or writing, you know, searching things on Google. The the four year old, well, I guess he's five now. He's smart. He can voice search, but the, you can only look at images to tell if it's right or not. 
Whereas my daughter, you know, actually type it out, uh, or maybe she might do a voice search, but then she's reading the results and, you know, not just guessing by looking at images of thumbnails and stuff, which one's right, you know, to pick out the video. They are reading and writing 10 million times more than what kids were 10 years ago. And I think people need to understand they are. Uh, and we and we all are, you know, we've become, uh, you know, outside of our immediate not our immediate circle, but outside of the people we spend the day with, and sometimes including those people, um, we've become a writing first, a reading first society. You know, if I want to contact customer services, I will use live chat. It's not chat, it's writing. You, you know, we, we call it we call it chat, but it's not. And, and that's, you know, and that's why, incidentally, it often goes wrong, because we think it's speaking when it's not. Um, but, you know, we're, I, I've... Going back in the early, I can remember the early days of email uh, in in offices, and I, I remember um, sitting in a in a small office, uh, and there were just three people in this office, and and my boss came in one day in a in a really terrible mood. He'd had a, I don't know I didn't know what was wrong. I had no idea, but he was really grumpy and really rude with myself and my and my other colleague. And about half an hour later, he sent. He sent us both an email apologizing. Uh, uh, and this guy sat six feet away from me, you know, and that, that was, that was 20, more than 20 years ago, you know, so that was, so even back then, you know, he, he felt it, you know, that did not make things better. Incidentally, I was just thinking, why didn't you just tell us, you know, we're here, but that's what we do now. We, 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 sometimes we hide behind it, but sometimes I don't think it's our fault. We're just drawn in by our devices. There's a lot of keyboard warriors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get that too. You, you get that too. Absolutely. Oh, well, I um, think the keyboard warriors go both ways. I mean, you apologize via email, you know, not because you're trying to troll or be a keyboard warrior, but, um, it, you know, there, there's the reverse psychology to that of what keyboard warrior typically means as well too and it's for people that are you know ashamed of their actions and but they have too much pride or ego or whatever it may be to not actually apologize themselves uh, by picking up the phone or walking over to your desk at six feet away and apologize so therefore they send it via email you know, I view that being a keyboard warrior too. It's just the opposite side, just kind of like what we were talking, you know, not too long ago about the, you know, the person that um, uh, got the brain tumor and, you know, went from Eagle Scout to, um, you know, a really bad guy uh, because of the tumor. I mean, I, I kind of view that. I, I, I think there's something else. Everything balances out. It, it does, but I think there's something else going on. I think that. It's yes, you know, some people hide behind it, but I also think that we we think on screen. So whether that screen is our is our phone or whether that screen is the it, you know is is on our desktop or is our laptop uh, on our laptop, it we we see that or that becomes an extension of our brain. Okay, so we're thinking we're thinking in that brain extension. Okay, and then. Uh, and so it becomes the most natural thing in the world then to to apologize or to continue the discussion online. I mean, if 
people stay in in arguments by text message for hours sometimes you know when they could if they you know if they if they just move that i'm just as guilty too but if they move their phone up to there they could probably solve it in in 5 minutes you know and and it's it's but we we don't we stay stuck or continue the conversation i mean that that that's something that's a point there that she said that i think is is golden too and i think a lot of people are guilty of this and they don't realize that i'm very guilty of this um, but I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm conditioned with the, the biz dev background and it's kind of like, Hey, I just had a meeting with somebody and I'm used to sending out a communication that kind of just reaffirms the, um, you know, the discussion that we just had, like, Hey, we just talked about this and this kind of what we agreed to. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just condition myself so much in doing that that I'll admit to it that I'm like this, and I think a lot of people are to where that well thing is is that then I finish up a, a good phone call, whatever it may be, with Preds uh, or whatever, and it's like okay, you know, I text them right away, you know, because I'm keeping the conversation going and reiterating what we may may have just spoken about for an hour and and bet you know beat to to the topic to death. And I'm guilty of that too, because it just, I don't know, like, uh, it, it just kind of engulfs because it just transfers the conversation, you know? I don't think that's guilty. I think, I, I don't think you're guilty of anything there. Right? You know, I think, but don't get me wrong, writing is a, is a miracle of adaptation. Writing is, is, a, is amazing. You know, you see dots and squiggles on a screen and you hear a voice in your head. That, that is, you know, that's as, that's as miraculous as, as, as it gets. Um, but what we what we do is we underestimate just how complex that is. We we take it for granted. So it, you, you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned you've got you've got a child just just um, just starting school. Um, you know, you think about what. Uh, oh, sorry, kindergarten. You think about what happens as a as as we're children. We learn to speak and listen. Um, we learn spoken language just by osmosis just by hearing the voices of the people around us so so you know we are uh, as our, our brain my five-year-old is actually bilingual fluent in spanish and english and it's amazing but that they there you go you, you know it, it's but they will even absorb the an awful lot of the, of the rules of grammar they won't know what they're called but they will abstain they will actually work out the grammar so for instance you know They'll, they'll work out that often in English that you, you put a D on the end or a D sound on the on the end of a word um, to, to to form the past tense. You, you know, so you know, so you know, you might say, you know, they they, they might say talk and they go to talked. You, you know, but but then you, the reason you know that is because of the mistakes they make. So they might, you know, they might say thinked instead of thought, or they might say seed instead of sword, you know, but you know that more happier. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, from that, that, I'm so more happier now. I'm like, no, (laughs) or, or, you know, think things like that. I hear those, uh, uh, types of things to your point. Like that means that he's understanding it. I think all three of our kids have been a little bit slower with talking, um, you know, the, the talking grammar and stuff like that up until the kindergarten ish letter. But since like, um, my five-year-old, I mean, he just turned five August 10th. Okay. So he's a newly minted five-year-old, but he is been speaking bilingual 
for over two and a half years. I mean, he's, you know, his first words were probably in Spanish. His second words were probably in English. And since then, it slowed down his development. If like, if he was speaking one language, okay, um, he would probably be a little bit further along. But I think he's almost at a normal five-year-old speaking ability level right now. But if, um, you know, you go back that whole time, he was speaking, you know, he was learning two different languages. And he also identified which languages are which, separated the languages, and who to speak to. All three of the kids did that before they were five years old. I mean, you're talking, what, uh, when did the kids start taking, like, really kind of babbling and speaking, like, maybe two-ish, right? I think uh, it feels like it's been forever. Around that time, whatever it is, you know, everybody's a little different. One and a half, two, somewhere in there, they really start babbling. Since then, he's been able to, you know, every now, like, it starts out a little bit of what we call Spanglish, mixing English and Spanish together. Starts out a little bit like that, but then as they start getting the two, two and a half, three, they're totally going different paths. So why it might not be perfect Spanish, while it might not be perfect English, both are separate. Right? Like he knows, mommy, I'm speaking just in Spanish, and okay, daddy, I'm speaking just in English, and you know he's separating that. And it's funny because sometimes he'll get emotional. He'll tell his Bob the whole story in Spanish, and I'll come in, I'll be like. You know, okay, okay, these is, you know, what, what are you saying? And I might even say it in Spanish, and he repeats the whole story just as emotional, uh, giving us a very emotional reenactment. Um, but uh, he does it all in English then, too. Um, and that's where it's like, holy cow, and this kid was, you know, three, four years old, like that, that to me is mind blowing. Now, I think what that, I mean, it's a wonderful story, and what I think that illustrates beautifully is. The fact that we we evolved to do this, okay? We evolved to speak and listen. It, we, we've been we, we've been using sounds to communicate literally since we crawled out of the swamp. You know, they found fossils of fish with vocal apparatus in them. Okay, so it, it's you know this is something that we are hardwired to do now, or rather, you know, we are programmed to we're programmed to learn to speak and, and uh, to listen, and from that to learn to speak. Now you contrast that with writing. No amount of no amount of reading something you don't understand will teach you to read. So you know if you if something is saying an alphabet that you that you don't understand, you know maybe it's you know maybe it's Russian, maybe it's Hebrew, maybe it's Chinese. You know if you don't know what those things are, you, it, no amount of just looking at them will will make you read. You won't absorb. You won't you won't learn reading by osmosis. You have to be taught. Uh, and so this is why I called. I call reading a miracle of adaptation because it's something it's something that we we have devised and we have to learn to do it. That's why it takes so long to to learn to read. What's actually happening when you're learning to read is you're rewiring your brain and you're joining together parts of the brain that you evolved for other things. So you've obviously got the you know you've got the visual cortex but but you've also got this, you've got your hearing, you know, you've got, so you hear words, as I said, you hear sounds in your head when you look at these dots and squiggles and you can tell this, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll make a mistake when I'm writing and I'll write down a word that sounds similar. Now I'm not, I'm not just saying words that, that sound exactly the same, but are spelt differently. So, you know, two with two O's or with a W, but you know, words like, you know, confusing bring and ring or something like that when I'm writing. 
And that says to me, I'm hearing the words. So we we join these things together. It takes a long time. We've not evolved to do that because the you know humans haven't been writing long enough to have evolved to have done that. The earliest writing only about five thousand years ago. You know, it's something we have to we, we have to do it, and it always it remains. And this is I think is key. How long have humans lived again? I forget. Just for comparison, so you put me on the spot. Millions of years. Okay, so so you know it's it's. It, it, I mean, if you think of a, a a major structure in the brain, okay, so so something like say the you know the visual cortex, um, that that takes that that can take a you know a, a million years for the brain to to evolve to to make major changes through evolution. Uh, I just uh, I threw it in Bing because I had uh, Bing open here, but um, yeah, yeah, I Bing. Um, about six millions years ago, humans have evolved according to what they say, which is crazy to think that six million years ago we've existed, and only the five thousand years uh, we've had we've had writing. Uh, I mean, maybe I mean who knows? Maybe it goes back ten or, or fifteen thousand years, and there's stuff that we just don't know from a yeah. The earliest examples that we've found. So writing evolved in. in... I mean, what did you count some of those uh, cave paintings and stuff like that as a form of writing or not? But certainly a form. Certainly a form of communication. But what we're talking about here is symbols. So using using symbols to represent language would hieroglyphics represent language or symbols yeah yeah so hieroglyphics would um so so language so written language evolved in i think four areas independently the earliest the earliest um examples um were um uh, sumerian so that's you know it's in modern day modern modern day um uh, iraq uh, and a little mystery about the Sumerian out there as well, too, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I think this goes back to like uh, I, I made a joke about the ancient alien type stuff that uh, they have drugs that look alien ish of gods or people. And from what I understand, there's a lot of mystery surrounding them as a culture. And that's why, I mean, if you remember Iraq, you know, what happened out there with some of the, you know, the the looting of the museums and the the destruction of these very old ancient documents that had my heart torn because it's like, you're never going to get that stuff back. And there may be answers to human evolution somewhere in some of this old data that teaches us something. Sorry, a little off topic there, but I had to mention it because I thought, I mean, that that's something that really bummed me out. When, once I heard that you brought up the word uh, uh, Sumerians and, you know, out there in Iraq, seeing that and that, because uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, Iraq doesn't have uh, pyramids like they do um, down in Egypt, but they also have a lot of different, just as many oddities for the times that the Sumerians lived. And it's like, how the heck did they build these? Like, um, what are they? Are they like the bulls or the horses or something like that out there, I believe, uh, from ancient Samaria? And they're like 25 feet high. And people are like, how they build this so beautifully out of stone? You know, it, it's incredible. You you should uh, you should check that out sometime. But um, one, one 
Yeah, yeah, that's what a lot of people say. A lot of people say it is. And it's really interesting that I, you know, that I have a, a guest like you because one of the, they have uh, courses on Audible and it's crazy because I just brought up uh, this book a few weeks ago to another guest on the show and we were talking about it for a moment, um, which is rare because I usually don't bring up uh, about this book, but it was the history of language and explaining how we got to our modern day languages, talking all the way back to the ancient languages and how tribes in Africa, for example, they'll do like the different clicks and stuff like that with their languages or how people pronounce the ending of the words differently and then just kind of how it spreads and how it grows and some of the mysteries about, hey, how come these people speak this language right here in this island, but the other civilizations like, um, you know, in that time period was 3,000 miles away or something like that. Uh, it, it, you know, they bring up some of these crazy things like that too, but it was about the whole evolution of, of language. And it was an amazing course because it, it's, this isn't like one of those um, pseudoscience type books um, or anything. This was actually a real college professor um Wharton, I believe is his last name, W-H-A-R-T-O-N. Um, and he's a real professor, and these are all of his lectures. And it's about 36 hours worth of lectures from a whole semester at his uh at his college. And it was amazing hearing the stories, all this stuff put together. So having somebody like you telling me how that stuff kind of works in the brain. I don't know. I feel like I'm just completing a puzzle here. Like I just got the other half to the puzzle that I didn't know when, because it, it, he didn't get into the neuroscience part of how language or writing or reading um, or talking or speaking, how that works into the brain. So to me, it's kind of like you completed the puzzle and now I got an idea. I do have one burning question for you though that has sat on my mind throughout this whole interview. And that is, You've named different areas of the brain that are for um, like reading, writing, stuff like that. Um, I think you said uh, for writing, it was two parts. Is that accurate? For, for language, for language, yeah. But I mean, it's not that, that those, I mean, you need to be a bit careful when when kind of ascribing areas, you know, and saying this is the language center, this is the, you know, it's, that's where there's a lot of activity. You, you know, it's, it's, you know, other, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. It's all kind of like, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's like, um, my core question though, would be this. Okay. With those, let's just say we suspect that there are these, this is the language center. Okay. Now people, they may have a brain injury. Okay. I think you said it was on the left side. So let's just say they get a brain injury. It happens in the left side. So then it reforms on the right side. Yeah, if you have, if you have, so the example I gave was in brain right. surgery. So it was, uh, I was thinking of, um, you know, there have been uh, people who've had uh, surgery for severe epilepsy, right? right. Uh, and they've had, and they've had the left side of their brain removed. Okay, but but these are kids. The, mm -hmm. These are these are children under the. I think they're younger than okay. five. Uh, and if the same if the same things happens later on. Uh, I don't believe you do get that. It, it's um, you know, so it has to okay. happen at a, at a time when, when the brain is in, in development. development. Yeah, the, the, the one of the surprising things about 
about kids is they have many, many, many more nerve cells, many more neurons in their brain than adults do. You'd think it would be the other way around, right? You know, so, but we're actually born with this kind of this abundance, this overabundance of neurons. And then what happens as we learn is it's, it's a bit like kind of chipping away at a rock to, re to reveal a beautiful sculpture. You know, what happens is is our environment, our learning, um, you know, the, the, uh, this is why, for instance, it's so in, important that our parents talk to us when, when we're young. You, you know, these, these, th these things send signals to say which bits to chip away and which bits to leave, and then you're left with this, with this structure. But, you know, that's all, there's so much happening in, in children. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's surprising that it's a process of taking away, not adding. With that, then, are the names, like the areas of the brain that you named, like, hey, we think this is the language center, like in a child like that, then if the language, like, are the names of the brain fixed then? So like, say there was a child that had that seizure disorder, had the surgery, and the language center of their brain then changes to you know a different part of the brain, or we suspect that it's in that part of the brain. Uh, well, especially because the other half isn't there. Um, so if that's the new language center, does it just migrate to a different name, or does it have the same name then? That's what I was trying to work out. Do you get the question? When you're talking about naming parts of the brain, the the names are most of them are very old. You know, so so they were so the brain was named before we knew what those areas were associated with. So, you know, we'll talk about the prefrontal cortex. We'll talk, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the, the hippocampus. The, the hippocampus, which is associated with memory, was named because it's shaped like, um, like a seahorse, you know, so the French for seahorse sea is hippocamp. So it's kind of, you know, it's, so, that, so these are anatomical names. Um, and, and so what you're really saying there is, is that function has moved from this bit of the brain, which we have a name for, to that bit of the brain, which we have a name for. Uh, but it, the naming really is is something that's. Uh, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying this. It's, it's historical. It's something you know. It's the early brain anatomists. They would they would name these parts of the brain uh, before really they 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 knew what they did. Um, and neuroscience is still a young science. You know, it's it's um it's not it's often overstated. You know that that. Neuroscientists have said, you know, you can do that if you do this. This happens, and uh, and often a lot of those statements are too, um, they're, they're too cut and dried. You, you know, they're too emphatic, and it's it's it's. And neuroscientists are changing their minds as well as they discover more. They, they you know they update they update their um, their theories and, and their opinions, and you know that's how science works. That's amazing, and um, that's how well at least that's how it's supposed to work, right? Uh, I do want to correct myself. The book I was talking about earlier was actually the story of human languages. And it was kind of the courses of what I was speaking. It's called The Great Courses. Uh, it's a part of their series, The Great Courses. Um, and there's a lot. But the author is actually John uh, McWhorter, W-H-O-R-T-E-R. For people that are out there listening, and um, I'm telling you, it's like a 35 hour or so course, probably longer. I mean, I listen to things on 150% to 180% speed, uh, so it might be longer than that. But this was an amazing, amazing story history. So I got one final question for you before we go. I know that you're into professional writing, that you 
study the brain science, okay, of written communication. I do notice that you've had a lot of high profile clients, including the UK Prime Minister's office at 10 Downing Street and even the Royal Household at Buckingham Palace. What exactly did you do for them? Can you give us any details of how you work with the prime minister and the royal family? Some details. Yeah, yeah. Not not, not all of them. Um, yeah, it's... It, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. Um, no, it, it's... With, with with those organizations, so, so the, 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 the prime minister's office, is, it's a it's, it's a department. It's like a... You know, it's a standing department. It's it's permanent. It, you know, that so so the, the the system we have over here is you have the you have the civil service and they're they're permanent, and then the politicians come and go. So we weren't working working with the politicians. It, it's kind of like that in 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 the the United States as well too. There's a, a permanent government um, that is the regular employees, and then you have the you know the the president that's elected and the higher officials some aides stuff like that yes they're elected but the people that really do the day to day stuff the daily grind they're they're perma staff so that's kind of the same thing that you're talking about cool okay they're kind of the unsung heroes aren't they or often in the, the people that keep keep the um they keep the lights on um but so so with them and with buckingham palace uh, you've got and again you know we weren't working with the royal family uh, themselves. We're working with the people who who advise those people, uh, and it's you know the same with the with the with the prime minister's office. People, there's you have to get information to those who to the lawmakers in that case, you know, to the people who are making the big decisions, and you know you, those people are not experts, and so you need to be able to brief them, and to you know to bring them up to speed very quickly on often on some very complex issues uh, effectively, so that they can hopefully not always but hopefully you know make make good decisions uh, and and the same is the same is true for for the um for the royal household too and and uh, those are yes that you know they're they're high profile clients uh, uh, of course but you know we've done the emphasis so you know this is um as opposed to my writing but it, it, the uh, emphasis that consultant consultancy has has worked it's done similar things with you know with tech giants in silicon valley or um, e- even with the, the the kingdom of Bhutan, you know, in the Himalayas, it's it's the, if people wherever people find they have to um, they have to communicate complex ideas clearly and effectively, then there is a need, or or at least there's an opportunity to um, for improvement and and really, you know, it's I mean, thinking thinking of you mentioned BizDev, you, you know, if you're trying to if you want to write a proposal, if you have to write a proposal, or you're bidding for a huge contract. If you can do that more effectively, you gain. And even if you only gain a slight edge, you know the the horse that wins by a nose still wins. You know, and and it's about gaining that advantage in in that instance. Um, so yeah, you know, eighty uh, eighty thousand people, I think it is, over the last twenty four years, uh, that company has uh, has helped and. Uh, uh, about eight thousand um, individual organisations, some very high profile, some less so. Um, it, it, that was my that was my honour and privilege to to do that, and that that company is still very much up and running. I chair it, but I, I'm no longer CEO, uh, and now I'm focusing on 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 the science of it. But um, yeah, it's there's a huge need for this, and it's and, and it's a special area as we've as has become clear today. Really, I think um, you know this is not something. 
that you can just kind of bluff your way through. It's you know there's a there's a lot to it. Uh, but if you if you, if you can pick it up, then you you know you you definitely do give yourself a, an edge. You know, so many people that watch a show. I mean, you're talking about business owners, young executives, and when I say young, I'm not necessarily saying you know age wise. They they could be. I mean, if you if you look at our demographic, they're probably mostly under 45, um, at least on YouTube. But they mostly are young career wise. Um, you know, they're younger executives. You have directors, people that really just want to grow personally, grow professionally, grow their businesses. Um, you know, they could be anywhere from a Fortune 500 company to a uh, you know mom and pop shop to a sole one person shop. You know, one person company where maybe they're an insurance agent and they just work for themselves or whatever. But I, I think a lot of people that watch this show, this was an important episode for them. I think the value that you've brought, um, you know, a lot of a lot of education came on about how the uh, the human brain works, and really, I, I think the people that are watching and listening are going to get value out of understanding better how reading, writing, talking, speaking, how all that stuff kind of work in the brain, especially the written communication, because, you know, a lot of these people, again, you know, they're trying to sell or they're trying to close deals, um, whether they're small or large deals. And you always struggle with the balance of how do I write things the proper way without having to write a whole book that confuses them? You know, how do I trim this down, get it more precise, get it more accurate and get, you know, so I can get the deal closed. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, it's, um, uh, and you mentioned, uh, you know, how do I write this in the in the proper way? You know, I think that's where people often trip themselves up. You know, they try to, they, they overwrite, they try to impress with their language um, rather than expressing with, with their language. Uh, and there's a lot you can do there to to trim back what you're writing and, and increase your impact. So if I give you an example, you know, so if you if you said um, you know could you give me some assistance to make a decision okay so so you might you might think that sounds you know that's quite it's quite wordy but you know it sounds quite eloquent could you give me some assistance to make a decision well if you take that word assistance you could say assist and then you'd have could you assist me in making a decision if you take decision you could say decide so then you could say you know in fact what you would say is um, not assist, but you'd probably be better off saying, could you help me decide? So if you go from, could you assist, could you give me some assistance in making a decision to, could you help me decide? You freed up a huge amount of brain space because that first uh, example I have had probably two or three times as many syllables, twice as many words. Uh, and what you're trying to do is impress people with your flowery language, whereas what you really want to be doing is communicating with them. And if you trim back that stuff, what you then do is give yourself more room to to deliver on your expertise to, to help the prospective clients um, to impress them with your knowledge. You know they don't they don't want to know that you've got a wide vocabulary. They want to know whether you can help them. So you need to communicate that as efficiently as possible. And I don't mean you strip everything back to bullet points. You know that's that's you definitely don't want to go there. You need to be telling some kind of story, and bullet points don't do that generally. Um, you know, you have to keep control or take control of the narrative. But 
this idea that there's a um, you should be writing in in a quote unquote correct way, um, and I don't mean that that you kind of go completely off piste. It's it's just don't think so much. People shouldn't think so much about trying to impress with with the way they're writing. They should be you know writing in a fairly fairly plain way, um, which usually means a you know using shorter words. Uh, and there are so many cases where where people do that, you know, where they, you know, they might say in they might say in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that, whereas where they could just say despite, you know, and then suddenly they've taken all these words out, and you, what you're doing is you're just tiring out the decision maker. I've noticed, like for example, Outlook um, has gotten some. I don't know if it's an add-on I put in on it or if it's just the the built-in capability of it now but as i'm writing work emails you know if i have something like that that example that you just said okay it will actually give you that little i forget if it's a red little squiggly line i think it's a blue one a blue one for grammar red ones if it's misspelled but it'll give you the blue squiggly line behind it and you click like what's wrong with that you know uh, and, and it was suggest despite like, Hey, instead of this, just say despite, uh, and it's like, okay, despite, but I'm actually in favor of that stuff because I, I do think, um, you know, I, I like to talk, you know, I have a podcast, uh, I like, uh, uh, written communication too, and trying to get things shorter and sweeter is something that I am constantly, constantly working on with myself. You know, I do find the situation that sometimes I have a prospect or I have a customer uh, that that's been our customer to where I actually got to over explain things uh, because if I don't, I know them and they're going to come back and they're just going to keep asking questions if I try to make it short and sweet. So I try to avoid that by over explaining to them, hoping that they don't come back. And it's really important to make that distinction. We're not talking about putting in less information. We're just talking about it as in the same way that, you know, people think that writing clearly is always about taking, removing all the jargon. You know, if you've got, if you've got words that you're sure your client will understand, especially if you've got words that your client is using all the time and it's kind of like an in language and you use that that in language, then you don't want to change that. That would be, that would be mad. You know, it can be a way to, to show an understanding. It's usually the words in between the jargon. You know, so we're not talking about we're not talking about in, about giving less information. We're just talking about it, it, we're talking about um, writing these things in a much clearer way, and that's, that's a very Im, important distance, uh, important difference, uh, the distinction to make. You know, you you might end up with an email that's twice as long. I, I, I don't know. You know, it depends what you're writing. It, it's but it's often seeing what you've written and thinking, what am I actually saying there? What am I actually trying to say? You know, walk away from it. Come back. You know, what what am I actually trying to say? Get away from that screen. That's that that magnetic screen that's drawing you in. Um, you know, and and become an extension of your brain, and, and just kind of think, okay, what do I need them to do? Where are they now? What are they interested in? Importantly, what do they want? Uh, you know, uh, not just what do they need, but what do they want? How can I make them? How can I make them want what they need? Um, you, you know, the, all these all these these kind of you know solid um sales skills uh, but then you know go back to those rather than getting caught up and trapped in the weeds of uh, pardon the pun trapped in the weeds of flowery language probably mixing metaphors there but yeah 
Um, yeah. No, that's uh, that's been great. Hey, this has been amazing. I think I've learned so much. And again, I love using my family or me as an example because you know it helps me grow, and that way, then they're real life examples that can help people in the audience grow as well too. So, hey, thank you so much for coming on. I've got to ask, how can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? Um, you know, and you, you said about the, I believe you said that you had the book that you were working on um, or published. Give us all the details. It's um, so what I'm really trying to do is raise awareness of the, of this topic because, oh, okay, you know, as I've said said all the way through, it's. You know, it's something that people take for granted and it's not, it has much more to it than we think. So what I've done is I've created a free training course and it is totally free. There's nothing promoted on there. Uh, and it's called Silent Influence and it covers some of the stuff we've we've talked about today, but, but a lot more. There's, you know, I could talk about this for forever. There's so much there, including things like, you know, the effect of emotion on how we read things and and whether mm -hmm. we really read or how much we predict what was, you know, why we don't see our biggest mistakes, that kind of thing. So if people just go to robashton.com, A-S-H-T-O-N, robashton.com slash influence, then they can they can sign up for that course and they will get um they'll get lessons in their inbox and audio. So they can listen to it like a podcast too. Uh and um yeah, that's the that's the best way. And on that website. You know, they can find out about the consulting I mentioned as well, um, just on my main website at robashton.com. Okay. Hey, that is awesome. As everybody knows, we always have the links down below in the description of the video on YouTube. Or if you're listening to the podcast, it'll be the very first link you see after the blurb of what the episode's on. Hey, Rob, this was really, truly amazing. I went way longer than I ever thought that we would. But as you said, you could talk about this all day. Apparently, I can too. So thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been amazing. Thank you. It's, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. Cheers. Wow. That was such an incredible chat with Rob, wasn't it? I mean, that's just mind-blowing. I mean, that the play on puns because we were talking about the mind, but it, it really is fascinating. First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button, or if you really want to help us out, give us a super thanks if you're watching on YouTube or you know, you can also do us another favor by sharing this episode. That's how Shark Bite Biz grows. You know, you've got to share us out to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it is. I would love nothing more than Rob Ashton and Shark Bite Biz out there trending. Now, let's get back to a rock star guest of Mr. Rob Ashton, okay? The Mysteries of the Mind. So very interesting. It's just one of those subjects that really makes you just kind of think uh, about everything and maybe look at things in a little bit of a different perspective. The way that we talked about the brain scanning technology, for example, and like how you can see that certain of the areas of the brain are lighting up, having activity when you're doing certain 
uh, you know, certain activities at a, you know, real time level. That is pretty awesome. And like you said, it's not 100% uh, precise, but it really kind of helps a lot of the neuroscientists out there to really just kind of see how your brain uses certain areas for different things like speech or writing or art or you know, walking or whatever it may be. And I really thought one of the more interesting things for me that I didn't really know too much about beforehand, uh, I've probably heard this stuff before, but I've never had a full-blown discussion on it like I did right now with Rob, is that, you know, if you're a young child and you have a traumatic brain injury and, you know, another part of your brain should eventually be able to develop and take over those lost features or functions, not all the time. And again, this is very limited instances, usually very young children where the brain is still fully developing. But still, that is amazing. I mean, if you think about it, if your brain is able to do that, and then you look at like what Elon's doing with his, uh, you know, the brain chip technology and that type of stuff, what is it, Neuralink or something like that? Um, our brains are extremely powerful. And I think it really comes down to people like Rob and other people, Elon even, you know, that are really pushing, how can we make them better? How can we take full advantage of our minds? And, you know, kind of think of it in terms of a computer, okay? With a computer, you overclock the processor, the graphics card, RAM, whatever it may be, to kind of get more juice out of it. I mean, our brains are pretty much like a computer in many ways itself. And I think ultimately where we're going is that we're going to unlock the power of the brain and be able to uh, uh, overclock, um, hopefully not underclock, but overclock our brains. And it just, again, just one of those fascinating discussions that really make you think about the mind, about writing, about reading, and about how everything just kind uh, flows together. It's like, you know, it's there, you know, that it does that. But when you take a step back and actually start thinking about it, I think that's where it makes a huge, huge difference. Awesome stuff, Rob. Your six years study into the mind. I got to tell you, you've got some amazing results uh, right now. And I cannot personally wait until your book does come out. Hopefully, we don't have to wait another six years. But when you get it out, please, I will be the first person to buy the book. Question of the day. Do you think that understanding the mind can help you write better? Please leave a comment down below on YouTube. Do you want to be on the show? Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Also, please don't forget if you're watching on YouTube, you could join the channel for $3 a month. You can become a baby shark. Uh, you know, don't forget we have our deadhousecoffee.com. Use code shark. You'll get 20% off your order and that helps support the work that we're doing here. Lastly, please don't forget Wednesday, September 21st, 6 p.m. My Myself, Odetta Pine, we are going to be doing Shark Bite Biz Live, talking about all the top business and tech news items of the day. You all know this by now, but I'll tell you again anyways. I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you at the live stream Wednesday night or with our episode next Monday. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. 
We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 